This episode of Table Talk is sponsored by J Food O, dedicated to sharing the best Japan has to offer. Over the next few months, J Food O and a selection of London restaurants will create seafood and sake pairings for spectator listeners to help develop your knowledge and enjoyment of the drink. The pairing will focus on the concept of umami, which in Japanese means the essence of deliciousness. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we're delighted to be joined by Lance Foreman. Lance is the owner of H. Foreman and Son, Britain's leading salmon smokers, and author of Foreman's Games. He was elected a Brexit Party MEP for London at the 2019 European election, but quit the party during the 2019 general election to endorse the Conservatives and formally joined them in January 2020. He was previously a special advisor to the Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. Lance, welcome to Table Talk. Delighted to be here. Lance, as listeners know, we always start with the same question, which is what are your earliest memories of food? My earliest memories of food, goodness, I was well I'm sure I was probably fed like most babies are with little sort of fruit purees stuffed down your <laughs> stuffed down your throat and most of it sort of uh, sort of dripping around your chin but uh, I do remember obviously being in the smoke salmon business I do remember as as a very young child probably about six years old maybe maybe even slightly younger my dad used to bring home a side of smoked salmon at the weekend and uh it was always a treat, and he, he taught me to carve it then when I was six, holding a very sharp knife. I'm sure he would have been taken away nowadays. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, back in those days, um, you know, it was something that you did, because there, there was no such... I mean, you couldn't buy smoked salmon in a supermarket uh, 40... Well, 40, what I was talking about, 50 years ago. You'd only buy it somewhere where they'd sort of carve it at the counter for you. So it was all freshly carved, and uh, that, you know, that was something we did. Of course, in those days, it was all wild smoked salmon as well. There was no such thing as salmon farm because that didn't really didn't kick off till the, uh, the late 70s early 80s and what were meal times like in your family well meal times are always a big deal um we come from a quite, a quite a traditional jewish family we were quite a large family had three sisters and we all sat down together usually a three-course meal um on a friday night maybe even a four-course meal but it was always quite formal and it was always you know you had to be the family always sort of sat down together uh, for a meal so it was you know it was it was a it was a really good time and what sort of things would you be eating at the, particularly the formal meals that you're having together what would be served well unsurprisingly uh <laughs> Smoked salmon, good, quite often feature. And you might think that being in the smoked salmon business, I'd be absolutely sick of it by now, and uh, we might have been sick of it. But it did feature quite often, actually. Again, um, there would usually be a soup course, quite often a chicken soup, and then usually a sort of meat course, and then yeah, a, a pudding, or it might be a bit of fruit or something, some grapefruit or whatever. But it was, it was, you know, it was quite a formal occasion uh, sitting down for dinner. But uh, say the smoked salmon just literally featured every. I used to, I used to be given smoked salmon sandwiches for school every single day, Fancy. and uh, 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 yeah, well, it was sort of amazing. But you do, you know, I sort of, you know, as a child, I got a little bit bored, and I was, <laughs> I, I had the best friends at school because everybody wanted to swap their sandwiches for mine, and uh, it was quite refreshing to have some alternatives occasionally. We normally actually ask a question about school food, but it sounds like you had quite happy memories of of school food. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, but I was always a bring your own sandwiches in child. 
basically because you know, I couldn't eat the school meals because they weren't kosher. And uh, so I had to sort of stick with kosher food. So it was always a packed lunch. Apart from the slicing of the smoked salmon, did you learn to cook as a child? Were you interested in, in cooking as opposed to produce? I've always loved cooking, actually. Um, my mum was a great cook, and I, I don't know whether I got it from her, but I, I've just always loved cooking. I used to love, you know, again, in those early days, watching all those TV chef programmes, the Rue Brothers, that they were fantastic. You know, even back to the Galloping Gourmet and uh, Fanny Craddock, probably, I think, is certainly before post, probably most of your listeners' time. But I, I, I used to love doing those. And I started a... Um, I think I was about 18, I started this sort of annual uh, tradition where I used to cook this New Year's Eve dinner. And it was a sort of 10, 12, even 14, 15 course meal that would sort of start at 10 in the evening, and go on till about four o'clock in the morning. And it always became a bit of a competition for friends to see who would get the invitation. But that, that tradition lasted for a good old 10 years, I would say. Yeah. And after school, you went to Trinity College, Cambridge, where you were president of the union. This is actually something Liv probably has more experience of asking. But what what was that like? What was the food like during your time at Cambridge and at the union in particular? College food, again, wasn't brilliant. It wasn't great. But I used to dine out. There were some pretty good restaurants back in those days. Uh, there was one particular one. I don't know if it's still around, actually, called Angeline. It had been there for many years near the Arts Theatre. Lovely little restaurant. Um, but I was also very fortunate because I, I had in my own room, would you believe, a little kitchenette and I had my own kitchen. And I would I would actually, you know, cook very nice meals for myself. Often made dinner parties at college, actually. And, uh, and what sort of thing were you cooking? Oh, God, anything. I mean, you know, it's pretty basic in those days, obviously, because, uh, you know, as a 20 year old, you don't start, you know, it's, it's not going to be that gastronomic. But, uh, you know, could have been anything from, you know, pasta dishes to you know, any. I mean, obviously, it had to be fairly basic because you didn't have a huge kitchen and lots of pots of pans around you. But, you know, it was it was it was a place that people would come and enjoy. And, you know, not that many students had the opportunity to, to do that or that were that interested, actually. So it was my my, uh, my college room is always a bit of a hub for uh, lots of uh, good food, great drinking sessions, well, lots of wine to go with. So that was always, uh, always and a bonus. at the union, were there lots of good parties? Well, the, at the union, we used to have these dinners before the debate. So you'd have these sort of formal black tie dinners and they were always great. Mm. And um in fact, I, I, I remember my own presidential dinner. We It was hosted in the um, Trinity kitchens. They have these absolutely stunning uh, old, the old kitchens. And uh, we, we did make quite a big deal out of that final sort of dinner, uh, for, as I say, for my presidential. That's where I, it was my last uh, dinner as, as president of the union. Trinity Kitchens, famous for the invention of creme brulee. Really? Yeah, Trinity Cream. It's known as Trinity Cream. Yeah, they, I think the chef uh, is a few hundred years ago. I think the chef accidentally burnt the cream, and uh, and they tasted it and thought, "Oh, this is actually rather good." And <laughs> uh, and creme brulee was born at uh, Tr- Trinity Kitchen. So there we go. And after Cambridge, you qualified as a chartered accountant. Was there ever any suggestion that you would go straight into the family business? Were you rebelling by going into chartered accountancy? Did we? Did you feel the pull of the smoked salmon at that point? Well. That's a that's a very good question. I actually wanted to be. I I've always been quite creative. I wanted to be an architect, and there was a big fight in my you know A level time at school whether I, whether I should go down the sort of art route or the sort of um, economics route. And I think the economics side of uh, the teaching profession managed to persuade uh, both me and my parents that that was the route I should go down. But there there was always a view that I would perhaps 
joined the family business and we thought that uh, doing accountancy would probably be quite a good training for mm. um, running a business at some later stage. It wasn't my lifetime ambition to be a chartered accountant. Um, it was actually quite a miserable time, I have to say. And, and immediately after I qualified, I started looking around for uh, jobs in the food industry and was offered a job, actually, for a, for a large sort of food PLC. And it was only when I handed in my notice, this was at Price Waterhouse. Uh, way back when, uh, that they persuaded me to hang about and stay on. They just started up this brand new department dealing with privatisation. And politically, that that was quite interesting to me. You know, Thatcher was in power at the time and it was, uh, uh, and I was quite a political animal. And um, I thought, you know what, this could be quite interesting. And I stuck with it and uh, stayed, stayed on for another three years. And you then were in Kiev for a little bit. Tell us about that. And what was the food like in Kiev? Well, it, it was actually the privatisation that led to me going off to Eastern Europe and uh, to, to Kiev. Within a year of joining that department, um, Eastern Europe start, or Central and Eastern Europe started to open up. And I spent almost the best part of a year travelling backwards and forwards to Poland and helping Polish companies on on privatisation, being valued and so on. And I could see that there were spectacular opportunities. Uh, and I've always believed that, you know, business opportunities exist all around us. But there are huge, you know, these once-in-a-lifetime business opportunities usually happen after massive political upheaval. And I thought that my generation's political upheaval would be the collapse of communism in the Eastern Bloc. And, and I decided that, you know, I really wanted to do a lot more than these big international firms are doing. And I bumped into an architect. Um, so there we were back into architecture again, bumped into this British architect. And we hit, had this idea of trying to sort of make a go of it in Eastern Europe. And within a couple of years, we plunged into Kiev. It was on the back of a, a back of a project that we were doing for a Canadian investor. And we both fell in love with the city. And we thought that, you know, maybe this would be the place where we'd make our future. The food side of things was quite interesting because uh, I'd be taken out to sort of uh, I mean it's very basic in those days but restaurants just in the middle of nowhere and I'd be looking down these sort of menus at the food that was available and all of the food reminded me of traditional Jewish food and what I very clearly realized was that Jewish food isn't necessarily Jewish it was East European and you know things like um, dumplings known as kanedlach they would have them on the on the menu in these Russian, you know, or Ukrainian uh, uh, restaurants, kanedlachy and kreplachy, which are like little ravioli, which are Jewish food, but it's not actually, it's uh, it's Ukrainian food. So that was, you know, it was quite interesting to, to see that. And in the 90s, you took over H. Foreman and Sons from your father. Tell us how that came about and, and how it felt to take on the family business. Well, um, you know, having spent a, a quite a bit of time over in Eastern Europe, a decision really had to be made with, you know, whether or not I was going to live there uh, full time. I was married at that stage, had one child at that stage or not. And um, my wife and I had a very brief discussion. Uh, as far as she was concerned, it lasted about uh, two seconds. And <laughs> we decided, no, Kiev is not going to be where we were going to move to. Although my architect partner did stay there and he was literally there up until a couple of weeks ago. So he's been there. He he, he um, remarried. He was divorced that stage and had three children. But uh, fortunately, they're all in the UK at the moment. Uh, so they did get out before the war uh, started. But, um, but I decided, no, that, that uh, maybe this is the 
particular moment that I do, uh, like a salmon, return to its uh, <laughs> native river uh, and uh, and join uh, join the family business. And uh, I've been here twenty seven years uh, ever since then. And can you tell us a bit about the history of the business? Because it was it was founded by your great grandfather, and he was an immigrant from Odessa. He was indeed. So again, all very much in the uh, very much in the news at the moment. So my great grandfather Aaron Foreman came from Odessa. Um, he was known as Harry Foreman, hence the H Foreman and Son. And um, he he was a Jewish uh, immigrant that was fleeing the pogroms of uh, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, uh, in the in the late nineteenth century. Settled in uh, the East End of London. There was quite a large wave of Jewish immigration into London at that time, and he settled in the East End and. You know, looking around for something to do, and uh, fish smoking was something that the you know East Europeans were quite familiar with, and I think it was I th- from what I understand he had a little cafe in the east east end of London, and it was his son actually that was uh, that saw other people smoking salmon and said, "Look, Dad, we can do this," and they set up the smokery, and so we weren't the first salmon smokers around in in London's East End, but we are now the last remaining salmon smokers in the East End, and I've I've been claiming for the last fifteen years we're actually now the the oldest producer of smoked salmon in the world, and nobody has said to me, "No, you're not, Mr. Foreman," <laughs> so it must be true. <laughs> And Lance, tell us about the salmon itself. You have the London Cure salmon that you're well known for, and your salmon comes from Scotland. Tell us about the kind of process for the salmon. Okay, so a lot of people think that smoked salmon is an ancient Scottish tradition, because of course the Scots had this great reputation. Well, Scottish salmon had a great reputation, and, and the Scots are quite famous for smoked fish. Kippers, Arbroath Smokies, Finn and Haddock, and so on. But they tend to be very smoky, and if, you, if you're if you a chef putting on a you know an important banquet, you'd never start the meal with a kipper, because you're going to taste it after the chocolate pudding five courses later and what happened in east london what my granddad or great granddad was doing was that they didn't in fact when they first arrived here they didn't even realize there was a salmon native to the uk so they were shipping over salmon from the baltic and smoking that for their own community not as a gourmet food it was just a way of preserving fish and they went to the fish market at billingsgate and they saw these amazing wild salmon coming down from scotland every summer and they thought well why don't we just use the local fish it'll be a lot easier so they started smoking the scottish salmon and the product was incredible and so they started hawking it around to famous places like the Savoy Hotel and Selfridges and Harrods and people fell in love with this new product and smoked salmon was born as a gourmet food in East London it was the marriage of the London curing method with Scottish salmon and what was different about that method was that it was a way of you know the you wanted people to taste the fish it was all about you know preserving the taste of the king of fish wild salmon so you'd salt the fish to draw the moisture out and when it was sufficiently dry that's when you release the smoke because as the fish cures instead of being a wet slippery sort of piece of fish it becomes a sort of sticky textured uh, fillet and then the smoke sticks to the outside and that essentially creates a seal and that is what protects it so the smoke in smoked salmon is a preserving method. It's not a flavouring. When you eat smoked salmon, when you eat fine smoked salmon, it shouldn't really taste of smoke. It's you know, it's all about the salmon. If they would have invented vacuum packing a hundred years ago, maybe no one would have come up with the idea of smoking the fish in the first <laughs> place. But um, but but it's you know, the London cure say is is a traditional method we've been doing, you know, for up well all those years, one hundred and sixteen years. And as you said at the start, salmon has obviously become much more kind of prominent. You see it in the supermarkets everywhere. What do you make of that explosion of salmon onto the market? Well, in a way, it's a good thing, but in a way, it's also a bad thing. And that's why we love doing uh, 
podcasts and things like this to, to actually re-educate the public about smoked salmon. Because, you know, 30 years ago, you could just mention those two words, smoked salmon, and people go, ooh, smoked salmon. It was a really big deal. It was something special. And nowadays, you know, the ooh is often ooh. <laughs> it's a slightly different tone. And, you know, we've done a lot of consumer events, and you say to somebody, you know, would you like to try some smoked salmon? And they go, no, no, it's fine, thanks. Which they wouldn't have said 30 years ago. They would have said, what, are you completely bonkers? I'll have as much as you can give me. But people have been put off, and a lot of smoked salmon now is just very slimy it's very smoky and then, you know even two or three hours later you need 10 peppermint chewing gums to get rid of the taste and the, the mass production of smoked salmon which has a, res, resulted from salmon farming um, has changed the nature and the way it's been produced and uh, you know a lot of even younger chefs don't really understand what smoked salmon was all about and it should be very natural we were very proud actually back in 2017 after a four-year application to, to get a special status for London Cure Smoked Salmon. So it has something called PGI status or geographic indication status. The same status that the Champagne has, Parma Ham, Cornish pasties. Uh, London Cure Smoked Salmon became the first ever London-based food or drink to have that special status. Of course, I was accused of mass hypocrisy because there I was getting an EU award <laughs> and uh, becoming... Uh, um, a Brexiter and Brexit Party MEP and then eventually as you said Tory MEP but um, life's, life's confusing sometimes <laughs> it sure is and aside from smoked salmon what do you like to cook and eat in your downtime um, I'm sort of one of these uh, sort of people that won't generally plan my food I'll just go to the fridge and see what's there and pretty much knock up what, whatever I can at the time obviously if you're doing a dinner party it's a, it's a very different thing but I'm also very, very lucky in that I run a uh, food business, uh, which has now diversified uh, very dramatically over the last 20 years. We, we set up an online home delivery service uh, called Foreman and Fields 20 years ago, specializing in the best of British food. And we make about, you know, I've got an amazing team of chefs and we make, you know, over 500 different food products and so it's almost like having a team of sous chefs so if I actually ever do need to entertain at home it's uh, it's a bit of a cheat actually but uh, <laughs> you know I do have most of the prep done for me but that's the that's what all all our foreman of field customers do actually because it's all handmade so they they sort of buy it in and pretend they've made it themselves and uh, you know we have everything we've got some just amazing uh, products uh, you know, from, you know, beef wellingtons to, you know, we do a cheese, the same cheese souffle you get in the Gavroche, the uh, souffle Suisses and so on, some amazing puddings. Uh, we just launched a new pudding uh, for the Jubilee uh, called the Elizabeth Sponge. Um, Which we should say you've actually brought in to try and is oh, very delicious. again. Well, I, I, ch- I challenged our chefs to come up with something interesting for the uh, Platinum Jubilee. It's a very exciting, historic moment. And um, they've sort of done a, a twist on a, a Victoria sponge. So it's, uh, it's a sponge cake with seven layers, seven layers of sponge, one for each decade of the Queen on the throne. And then we did a bit of research into the Queen's favourite uh, puddings and uh, tipples and so on. And we found out that she, she loves lemon posset. And she's also a big, uh, a big fan of Dubonnet. And who isn't? Uh, so um, so we, we have the seven layers of sponge and they're interleaved with uh, uh, lemon posset cream, uh, sort of mixed with buttercream. Um, so very tangy. And then we've made a Dubonnet jam and oh, a wow. Dubonnet glaze on the top. And the, uh, the flavours actually work superbly and it's yeah. really delicious. We're launching it later this month just in time for Mother's Day because, of course, Her Majesty is the mother of the nation. So there we go. <laughs> it's very delicious. 
And Lance, for a while, Foreman and Field have advertised in the back pages of The Spectator. Are Spectator readers big smoked salmon fans? Well, of course they are, because they're very intelligent readers and they have exquisite taste. And uh, yes, they are. We've been um, making uh, quite a lot of the food for your Spectator lunches over a number of years now. And in fact... um, Latest year, May the 6th, uh, we are doing the first ever spectator tour of our smokehouse with this fabulous lunch afterwards and some smoked salmon tastings. And I think there are still a few places left if uh, any of the listeners are interested in coming along. So May the 6th, do come. I'll see you there. And for any listeners who are interested in the smokehouse tour, just go to the Spectator website where you'll find more details on the Spectator shop page. Lance, we normally finish with a question about your desert island meal. What would your desert island meal be? Goodness, a desert island meal. Um, God, where do I start? I mean, fish would have to feature in there somewhere because when you're on the desert, I mean, there's nothing better than fresh fish. I mean, you cannot get a better uh, food than fresh fish. Um, you, you probably wouldn't get salmon on a desert because they like cold water. So um, they have to be a slightly warmer water fish. I love I love sea bass actually, so sea bass will be fantastic. I'm a huge fan of artichokes. Whenever I go to a restaurant and there's artichokes on the menu, that's almost a dead cert. And then I I also love um, say puddings. I like sort of you know Indian sort of spice type puddings. They're things with saffron and cardamom and uh, so maybe something sort of spongy and gooey and lots of uh, lots of lovely sort of spices in there too would be uh, a perfect way to finish. But uh, would you have yeah. a drink? Would I have a drink? Um, I, I'd just be, well, I think I'd probably start and, well, start and finish with Negronis. I mean, you know, why wouldn't you? But I do love a Negroni. I have to say that is my weakness. But, uh, but yeah, whiskey, love whiskey, love fizz. Who doesn't? Fizz and, I mean, fizz and smoked salmon. Are, I mean, they, they, you know, some partnerships have become quite cliched but they really do you know I've tried smoked salmon I've done so many different tests with other sorts of wines but just fizz and also some of the English wines which we've again been promoting for about 20 years now some of them are really fantastic some really amazing English sparklings. Lance thank you very much for joining Table Talk. Thank you for joining us on the Spectators Food and Drink podcast for more recipes food history stories and drinks you can head to the Spectator website.